Good morning, everyone. There aren't many things that make me spontaneously laugh out loud, but this week NJ.com posted a story and a cell phone video that just brought me to tears. I was laughing so hard. Seems that last Sunday at the Newport Center Mall in Jersey City, they had a display in the center court with a live person, you know, dressed up as an Easter bunny, and little kids would come and sit on his lap and get, you know, get their pictures taken. Well, one little girl, when she was getting off the Easter bunny's lap, something happened where she slipped and she sort of fell. And her father thought it was the Easter Bunny's fault, like he was being careless and dropped his daughter. So the dad just goes ballistic and attacks the Easter Bunny, starts wailing on him. You know, but this Easter Bunny was nobody's punching bag. So in the video, you see the Easter Bunny kind of throw off his fluffy bunny gloves, and the two of them go at it like Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. I mean, it's so bad, the mall cops have to come in and tackle both of them. I mean, it was like something you'd see in a Saturday Night Live skit or in a Paul Blart movie. The visual image of those mall cops tackling the Easter Bunny. I mean, that just kind of just put me right over the edge. And of course, everyone now wants to know who framed Roger Rabbit. Some folks have gotten pretty far away from the true meaning of this holiday. Not bunnies or chocolate eggs or even the flowers of spring but the one who truly brings new life, Jesus Christ, risen from the grave, conquering sin and death, offering us forgiveness and a fresh hope for this world, for this world and for the next. It's the resurrection revolution where God and Christ takes action to redeem this fallen world. And every year we tell the same story of what happened during that first holy week in Jerusalem some 1,983 years ago. Jesus' triumphant Palm Sunday entrance into Jerusalem, his, his final teachings, his enemies maneuvering to betray him, the last gathering with his disciples at the Passover meal, his, his emotion-packed prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then in rapid succession, the arrests, the beatings, the phony trials, the crucifixion, and Jesus dead with an extra spear thrust to his heart just to make sure. Everything crashed and burned so fast it left the disciples stunned and disoriented, dispirited, doomed, hiding out, waiting for the Roman SWAT team to kick in the door and haul them away. Then, Sunday morning, the women go to Jesus' tomb to finish the burial rituals that were interrupted by the Jewish Sabbath. The, The strange encounters at the tomb, the body gone, the grave clothes still there, but like a like a collapsed cocoon angelic light and what they say is an encounter with Jesus alive and there's a lot of running back and forth to the tomb by the disciples and then later that same Sunday they're all gathered in that locked room trying to put the pieces of this puzzle together and then suddenly Jesus is right there with them they think it's a mass hallucination like their grief has has just made them crazy so Jesus eats a piece of broiled fish right in front of them to prove that he wasn't a ghost or a figment of their imagination. They touch him and they realize the truth of what he had been telling them all along, that he would rise from the dead, that he was stronger than sin and more powerful than the the worst thing that this world can do to us. But one of the disciples wasn't there, Thomas. And that's where we pick up today's scripture story. From the Gospel of John, chapter 20, starting with verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, 
one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the whole nail were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas. You say his name and we all immediately think doubting Thomas. That's how he's remembered. He is indelibly stamped in our minds as a pessimist, a negative kind of guy. And I think that's unfortunate because to me, Thomas is one of the great heroes of the Christian faith. He's only mentioned three times in the Gospel of John. The first time in John 11 in the story of the death of Jesus' friend Lazarus. Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus and ask him to come. And Jesus' disciples object because to get to Lazarus' village, they would have to go through a territory where people really hated Jesus and might try to kill them. But Jesus He's determined to go no matter what the risk. And then it says in verse 16 that Thomas says, that Thomas the twin said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go with him that we may die with him. Now people read that either two ways. Either it's an example of how fatalistic Thomas was, like, you know, Eeyore, that pessimistic blue donkey in the Winnie the Pooh stories, you know, with that constant dark cloud over his head, you know, I guess we're going to die too. Or is it a statement of real courage, that Thomas was willing to stand with Jesus even if it meant death. When Thomas believed in something, he went all the way. The second time we see Thomas is in that great passage in John 14, verses one through five, where he elicits from Jesus the clearest, most magnificent statement of hope for life after death that Jesus ever made. We hear it quoted over and over again at memorial services and funerals, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me. You know the way to the place where I am going. In a beautiful way, Jesus is saying that when you die, you're not going to float around on fluffy clouds or pluck harps or shine halos for all eternity. When you die, you will be with me. That's what heaven is. It's your continuing connection with me. We will be together. That's what makes heaven, heaven. And everyone is just in awe of what Jesus is saying. And then Thomas is in the back row and he kind of sticks up his hand and he says, "Uh, Jesus, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. I don't know where you're going and I don't know how to get there. I don't know the way, so how can I know how to follow you? In the middle of this fabulous speech, Thomas comes in again with his showstopper. And what I love about Thomas is that he is just so honest. He's not going to keep his confusions hidden. He is willing to say it, and I admire him for that. Nobody else knew what the heck Jesus was talking about either, which was frequently true of the disciples. They were just kind of nodding and going, uh-huh, you know, what'd he say? You know? Maybe they talked about it later, but they weren't going to ask Jesus straight out because they didn't want to look stupid. But Thomas wasn't that way. Thomas wanted to know. 
his uncertainty made him question. And that gave Jesus a wonderful opportunity to clarify for all time, how is it that people get to heaven? In response to Thomas, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If Thomas had not expressed his doubt, Jesus may not have expressed with such clarity how it is that a person gets from here to heaven. It's through Jesus Christ alone and faith in him. Thomas's question gave rise to a deeper understanding that has benefited every Christian generation from that time until today. How beautiful is that? The third time we see Thomas is after Jesus' death and the news of his resurrection has started to circulate among the disciples as we just read. The important thing to remember about the resurrection is that the Christian faith is a personal relationship with a living God. It's not devotion to a religious system, a, a moral philosophy, or even a code of life. Being a Christian is a relationship with the living Lord. It's not, you know, honoring the teachings of some dead philosopher. Without the resurrection, people would stand at Jesus' grave and talk about all the wonderful things Jesus said and did, but then they would have to walk away hopeless. Instead, we go to an empty tomb and realize that Jesus is living and active, that he can make a difference in our lives today through the power of the Holy Spirit. And ever since that first Easter, lives have been transformed by him. But Thomas wasn't there that first time Jesus appeared to the disciples. Where was he? You know, did he bail out? You know, I don't think so. Probably he withdrew within himself. When there was hurt, when there was discouragement, Thomas was the kind of person who didn't want to be with other people. When he was hurting, you know, he didn't want to make small talk. He had to be alone. He was a private person, probably more introspective, so he needed to wrestle within himself, by himself, to try and figure out what was happening in his life. He wanted to be alone with his hurts, and I can identify with that because there's some of that in my personality type. When the other disciples come to him with their news, he gives them kind of a stark response. Unless I can see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger Where the nails were and my hand into his side, I will not believe it. I mean, the disciples are on cloud nine, and Thomas just kind of lets the air out of their tires. You know what that's like. You're excited about something, you want to share it with someone, and they just kind of sit there like a lump. But there's more here than that. Thomas, remember, he's an intensely honest man. He's not going to take somebody else's word for it. This is something that he thinks needs careful investigation that has to satisfy his mind. It has to satisfy his intellect. He's got to have real physical evidence. He's not going to have any kind of blind faith. He wants real physical evidence that Jesus has come back from the dead. He needs facts. You know, I know you think it happened. That's great for you. But I've got to see it for myself. You know, that's one of the frustrating things about trying to share your faith. Sometimes we want people to live off of our faith. You know, we've had a great experience with Jesus, and we want others to share our experience, but people can't live off of somebody else's autobiography with God. I mean, you can't base your relationship with God on 
what your spouse has experienced or what your parents or your grandparents have experienced. We all have to have our own encounter with Christ. And we have to give people the freedom to have their own encounter with God because that is really what Thomas was looking for. He couldn't live off the experience of the other disciples. He had to know Christ for himself. So though, though Thomas probably was never voted happiest disciple, when it came to making a commitment, he meant it. He thought things through, and when he was thoroughly convinced, he moved out in that direction with all his heart. And so, eight days later, the disciples are together again, and this time Thomas is with them. He hasn't isolated himself completely. The doors are shut, and suddenly Jesus came among them, just like before, and stood among them. Jesus said, peace be with you. Now, who is he speaking to? I think primarily to Thomas. He'd already encountered the other disciples. They kind of already were used to him popping in and out. Who needed the peace the most? Probably Thomas. I think he was speaking peace to Thomas because this is not something that ordinarily happens, someone just appearing suddenly in a locked room. Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here. Put your hand here. I don't think Jesus said that you know, in a harsh way. I don't think he said, Thomas, you need proof? Well, step up, come on. I don't think he said it with an edge in his voice. I think he offered his hand and just said, Thomas, here I am. You wanted proof, so I'm giving it to you now. Jesus knew what was in Thomas's life. He knew his struggles and his heartaches. He knew the doubts like he knows every single doubt and heartache, every struggle in this room this morning. And he says to us, here I am. Ask, doubt, but encounter me. I will give you all the evidence you need. It reminds me of the problem of Eric Weinemeyer. He was a blind mountain climber who had successfully scaled seven of the world's tallest peaks. In 2001, he was climbing Mount Everest. After he arrived at the base camp in the Khumbu Valley of Nepal, a rumor began circulating among the Sherpa guides that he really wasn't blind. I mean, they had never heard of a mountain climber who was blind. They, they thought he had to be faking because when he was walking by, he didn't just flop over on his face every few feet. They did, had never seen a blind man like that. And so people would approach him in the bazaar and wave their hands in front of his eyes. And because blind people can be sensitized to things, he, he, he would feel the wind and he'd flinch a little. And they'd say, see, he's not really blind, he's faking it. So finally he called his lead Sherpa, a guy named Kame Tenzing, into his tent. And he said he had a message that he wanted taken back to everyone else in camp. And Eric leaned forward and kind of pulled down his left lower eyelid and his prosthetic eye popped out into his hand. And he said to his Sherpa, I can take the other one out too. No, no, not necessary. Some people need evidence. What more evidence did Thomas need about Jesus Christ? Thomas was not faithless. He just needed that personal encounter with the risen Christ. And it was a great moment of truth. He could have still said, I still don't believe it. This is a delusion. He still could have walked out. Instead, he gave one of the greatest statements of faith ever recorded. One of the great prayers of adoration ever prayed. A model for all believers down through the centuries. What does it mean to believe? It means to stand in awe before Jesus Christ and simply to say, my Lord 
and my God. That's it in a nutshell. To be able to say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. We're not really sure if Thomas actually touched Jesus. Did Thomas actually have to reach out his hand and put it into Jesus' side? We're really not told that in the text. If you look at all the artwork of this moment that's been done over the centuries, they generally show Thomas' hand going right into that spear wound in Jesus' side. And I don't know if he actually did that. But whatever happened, it convinced Thomas so thoroughly that he gave his life to Jesus and spread the word about him until years later when he was killed for it after bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to India. You see, doubt is a really important part of our journey of faith. There is doubt on the outside of faith looking in, and then there's doubt on the inside of faith looking out. When doubt is on the outside of faith, it's not sure about anything. It questions, you know, is God even real? Is Jesus who he claims to be? How can I know Jesus even existed? Is is the Bible true? Can miracles happen? Why is there pain and suffering? I mean, lots of honest and important questions that deserve solid intellectual answers because many people need to seriously wrestle with these basic faith issues. Lee Strobel was a person like that. You've heard me talk about him before. He was an award-winning journalist with the Chicago Tribune and an agnostic who didn't believe in anything religious, much less the resurrection of Jesus. And he decided to apply his investigative journalism skills to disproving, kind of debunking the Christian faith. And he writes, All I had ever really given the evidence was a cursory look. I had read just enough philosophy and history to find support for my skepticism. Fact here, a scientific theory there, a pithy quote, a clever argument. Sure, I could see some gaps and inconsistencies in this thinking, but I had a strong motivation to ignore them. A self-serving and immoral lifestyle that I would be compelled to abandon if I were ever to change my views and become a follower of Jesus. And as far as I was concerned, the case was closed. There was enough proof for me to rest easy with the conclusion that the divinity of Jesus was nothing more than a fanciful invention of superstitious people. Or so I thought. The more he looked into it, the more he investigated, the more he explored the archaeology and the historical facts, the more he was drawn to Christ until finally he had his own divine encounter with Jesus. And like Thomas, he could declare, my Lord and my God. He's written about how his life and his mind were changed by the evidence he discovered. And I really recommend any of Lee Strobel's books like The Case for Christ or The Case for Easter. If you're like Lee Strobel, then I hope you won't settle for half answers. That you'll push a bit harder, push a bit deeper, because there is ample evidence to satisfy the mind and sensitize the heart to the love of Christ. What about doubt on the inside of faith looking out. You see, doubt is not the opposite of faith because there is always doubt within the circle of faith. Doubt is normal, especially when you're going through a time of crisis. You know, did God hear my prayer? Can God do anything? Will God do anything? Does God even care? Recently, I read about a minister whose son had committed suicide and this pastor decided he wanted to speak to his congregation about what he'd experienced, I mean, still in tremendous grief. And he, he read the verse from Romans, 28, Romans 8, 28, the familiar one that goes, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who are 
called according to his purpose. And then he said this, I cannot make my son's suicide fit into this passage. It's impossible for me to see how anything good can come out of it. Yet I realize that I only see in part. I only know in part. It's like the miracle of the shipyard. Almost every part of the great ocean-going vessels are made of steel. If you take any single part, a steel plate out of the hull or the huge rudder, and you throw it into the ocean, it will sink. Steel doesn't float. But when the shipbuilders are finished, when the last plate has been riveted in place, and that massive steel ship is virtually unsinkable. Taken by itself, my son's suicide is senseless. Throw it into the sea of Romans 28, and it sinks. And still I believe that when the eternal shipbuilder has finished, when God has worked out his perfect design, even this senseless tragedy will somehow work to our eternal good. Friends, there will be times of doubt and struggle from within the Christian faith. Doubt doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. It just means you're a normal person. Doubts will come. But it's important where you place them because if your doubts come between you and God, they become a wedge of separation. But if your doubts press you closer to Christ, they become an opportunity to deepen your experience of him. Thomas's doubts evaporated in the presence of Christ. My Lord and my God. Thomas's astonished prayer could be the most important five words of the entire Easter story. Because they are the words Jesus wants to hear from each and every one of us today. A simple yet powerful declaration, a summary statement of what it means to encounter the living Lord. My Lord and my God. Friends, Christ is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example of Thomas. And that his story was included in scripture for a reason, because it touches the heart of all of us doubters, all of us who have ever had questions, all of us who have struggled with faith. And Lord, whether we're on the outside looking in or on the inside looking out, we just pray, Lord, that you would meet us at our point of need and draw us closer to yourself. Help us to know you in your risen power. Help us to be the ones who can look to you always and say, my Lord and my God. We give you praise on this Resurrection Sunday. In your name we pray. Amen.